What a joy to be with you. I was sharing with the earlier service, it's been about five or six years since I've been here uh, at, at First O'Fallon, and so it's, it's good to see you and, and be a part uh, of worship with you. Uh, one of the great joys of my life and work is to be able to worship literally all over the state, and uh, that, has been a, that has been a great thing. We're going to look in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount today, which uh, interestingly enough, I'm actually walking through the whole Sermon on the Mount with, with my church uh, in Springfield, and uh, we're, we're going to look right in the heart of that, Matthew 6, at uh, a, a, an area of text that's oftentimes labeled the treasure principle. You'll understand why in just a moment. Uh, but the, the name actually is given to that by Randy Alcorn. He's got a book of the same name, which I strongly recommend uh, to you for your reading. It's just an excellent resource. But it's interesting, right in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, that section of text where uh, Jesus is, is delivering uh, key teachings that we still are just amazed by, you know, all these centuries later, uh, right in the middle, Jesus talks about money and financial management. And, and it's interesting because as soon as I began to say anything about money within the church, uh, I recognize that it's oftentimes there's a misunderstanding on the way somewhere. You know, somebody will say, well, I don't want to talk about that. In fact, you've probably heard people say, well, uh, you know, I'm not going down to that church because all they want is my money. <laughs> You know, and again, there's oftentimes, now interestingly enough, not only is there oftentimes a misunderstanding, but particularly about money is oftentimes underpreached uh, in, our, in our churches. And let me tell you why I say that. It turns out that there are over 2,300 biblical texts throughout all the Bible that deals with money and money management. I mean, that is a massive number of texts. And so it's very clear that God cares about this topic. In fact, that's more than heaven, hell, and grace combined in terms of the frequency. So it's a huge topic. And so it also follows, I think, just from a common sense perspective. Think with me just a moment. Now, I recognize in any particular age, uh, you know, that you're, that you're dealing with uh, people that are already in the workforce, students or maybe children, but, but, but if you're at least contemplating getting into the workforce or older, you recognize the truth of this statement, about 75% of our life is spent, our waking hours anyway, in the making spending or managing of money. Think about that with me. It's amazing, isn't it? It really is when you begin to, to, to think about the truth of that statement. And so it's a massive thing, and sure enough, the Bible reflects that. So I'm not really surprised that right here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus brings up this essential teaching. Well, what we're going to find today is that not only does Jesus talk about it, but we're going to look here, and then just a few chapters later, uh, just a book later, uh, we're, a couple books later, we're going to look in Luke, and we're going to see how Jesus applies his own teaching. And then we're going to see how the church applies his teaching as well to talk about this, this incredibly important um, topic. So 
Let's go ahead, and, and if you've got your Bibles, you've got a, a, a glowing Bible in front of you or the screens behind you, whatever it is, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to share with you this, this critical text called, you've oftentimes referred to as the treasure principle. Don't store up for yourselves, verse 19 through 24, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. Here's where it gets the, the name. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness so if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? And then in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Would you pray with me? Father, over these next few moments, I pray that your word would once again bring conviction to me first. That's selfish, I know, but Lord, I know my own heart, and I know I need to be reminded of this principle again and again and again in my life. I pray that those that are here this morning or listening remotely, that Lord, your spirit would indeed invade our heart, that your spirit would bear on its wings the truth of this text. And that you would forever change us because we've met with you here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before we begin anything, I, I want to suggest to you that if we're going to truly understand what Jesus means by talking about this essential text, again, a lot of, a, a lot of words right in the middle of this, this Sermon on the Mount, right? If we're going to really understand with that, I, I want to suggest to you that the first thing I would want you to know is that money must be used and thought about with an eternal perspective. Money must be used and thought about with an eternal perspective. Let me tell you a little bit more about what I mean by this. I, I want to suggest to you that every money decision is essentially a spiritual decision because it reflects your values, right? I mean, if I... If I, if I value a really, really fine car, I'm going to put my money there. If I value a really, really fine house, I'm going to put my money there. If I value uh, the, 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 the eternal lives of individuals that need to be introduced to Christ, I'm going to put my money there. Again, you see that everything we do ultimately comes back to our spiritual nature what we believe about money. Now, it's interesting that as we understand the, the spiritual nature of money, I want to suggest to you that, that, it, that it implies how we think about investments. And so let's go back and let's look at our anchor text again for just a moment. Let's go back and look at Matthew chapter 6. What you'll see is that very clearly it, it, it begins to say, hey, wait a second, you need to put your money in a place where money is appreciating. It's gaining in value rather than depreciating, losing value. Now, I don't know if 
inflation is something that you think about a lot, probably in our culture at this time. You should be if you're not. But it's absolutely true that inflation is the ability for money to lose purchasing power over time. Let me give you a real simple illustration of what that means. Let's imagine that it, I'm in, living in 1960s and I buy a loaf of bread. And I don't know what loaf of bread was, was in 1960. Maybe it was 70 cents, something like that, 60 cents, somewhere in that ballpark. And let's imagine that I go out and I buy a loaf of bread today down at Schnucks or wherever it is, and, and I walk in and, and, and I buy the, I mean, chemically, identically the same loaf of bread that I was buying in, in 1960. Let's imagine that today I'm paying $3 for that loaf of bread. Well, what happened? It's the same loaf of bread, right? I mean, that hasn't changed. What happened is the money that we use got smaller right? It changed in its ability to purchase. And that very effect impacts all of our economy. Here's my point. If we simply hold on to things that are right here, right now, like loaves of bread, eventually we get to purchase less and less. We live in a place in which things naturally erode. And so that was Jesus' point. He said, said, said you, can, you can invest your money in places where moths break in and kind of eat out the cloth. Or rust corrodes something that's metallic and eventually goes away. He said you can make that choice or you can invest in something that is durable and is going to last forever. Well, what on earth fits that criteria? What on earth could we invest in that would last forever? Because everything that we could imagine here is exposed to inflation, it's exposed to corrosion, it's exposed to breaking down, we drive a car off the lot, you know, all those illustrations I could give you. Well, let me just suggest to you that the only thing that I know of that is absolutely forever durable and lasts forever, you ready? It is the building of the kingdom of God in terms of human souls. That's it. Everything else begins to break down except for when we invest in people that live forever. And so we begin to say, hey, wait a second. I want to make sure that the cry of my heart, the value of my heart begins to track there. And it's that tracking I want to talk to you about for just a moment. The, the way our heart naturally follows where we make these investments. Several years ago, my eldest daughter, Lauren, she went to uh, Hannibal LaGrange University and right across the river in, in, uh, in Hannibal, Missouri. And, and I, had, I had visited the school. It was a fine school, and I had had some conversation with administrators, and that all went well. So Lauren shows up for orientation day, and she goes to the school, and she goes to classes. But, but guess what? Before all of that, I was interested in Hannibal LaGrange, but I got really interested when I started writing checks and sending them to Hannibal LaGrange. Magic how that works, isn't it? Right? Suddenly, my heart began to track my treasure. See that? And again, that same principle works out time and time again. What we value the most suddenly is a reflection of what's going on in our heart. 
Lastly, let me, let me, let me point out something that, that, uh, that can easily be overlooked. Take a look at verse 24, back in our anchor text, back in the, the first text we look at. Look at, that, look at that, uh, that verse. Boy, that is harsh teaching. That is tough teaching. Look, look at what it says. He says, you cannot serve two masters since either you will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve both god and money here's what i've observed i've observed that and jesus is giving us a bit of a warning here unless you resolve this issue in your life there is always going to be a clash of kingdoms in your soul there's always going to be a clash of kingdoms in your soul. I had shared earlier that I won't particularly share this name, but it was uh, it was in the first church that I uh, th- that I was uh, uh, ha- had the privilege of pastoring. I was uh, I was 19 years old, and so ha- how many 19 year olds are here this morning? If you're 18, 19, kind of kind of raise your hands if you're willing to confess. Anyway. Um, and, and so, so imagine at 19 year old, I, I was pastoring my first church, and, 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 and what this means is God bless that first church. They were so tolerant of me, they were so gracious to me. But one of the things that, that I learned real quickly is is that we had a had a um, we had a treasurer in there, and uh, she was uh, she was an interesting individual. Uh, in fact, if I were going to give her a spiritual description, I would just say that she was simply grouchy all the time. And, and her, her default position was no. And, and so you talk about a ministry initiative that needed to be happening and that you needed to spend some money on, and she would say no. In other words, what she was interested in, unfortunately, was preserving the bank account's balance that more than she was building the kingdom of God. It's interesting because, again, I noticed that not only in her but in others, when there is a conflict in our soul about how we think about money and generosity, it produces crankiness. It produces a, 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 a clash of kingdom values in us. And so that's one of the reasons why this really needs to be resolved. Well, let's move from Jesus' teaching on this Let's move from there to let's move to how he applied it, okay? So this is kind of a, like a learning lab, but you know, how, you know, now that we've got the teaching out of the way, let's look and see how Jesus actually gives it in daily application. And so let's go to Luke chapter 18, and we're going to actually look in two chapters, Luke chapter 18 and Luke chapter 19, and I just, I just think that the, the gospel writer, Luke, was so brilliant to put these two stories so close to each other. Look what he does. Luke chapter 18, I'm going to be reading uh, beginning in verse 18. Uh, a guy comes to Jesus, and, uh, and, and he's known as a, as a ruler of sorts, so he has some authority. And I don't know if he had authority given to him by political title or if he was just wealthy and, and so he had some credibility in the community. I don't know. But listen to what he says. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? Already I think he's beginning to peel back a little bit of his heart. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except for God alone. Listen to what he says. Verse 20. 
you know the commandments. And, and look what he does. He, he, he's basically reviewing the Ten Commandments with him. That's where he goes. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And by this point, he's feeling pretty good about himself. In fact, he feels pretty validated in the whole conversation. So much so, in verse 21, he says, wait a second, I have kept all of these for my use. Literally, what is happening is that Jesus is giving him this list, and he's saying, check, 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 got it. And then Jesus, of course, knows his heart, and he nails him. Look what happens. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Recognize that, recognize that phrase, right? Treasure in heaven. Sounds like Matthew 6, doesn't it, in a lot of ways. Then come and follow me. And after he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. And seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, a little humor here, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Wow. Think about this with me. This guy is confronted with the very creator of the universe, the one who made all that we enjoy, the one that we worship. He's confronted with Jesus and he blows it. This is a guy we will not see again those of us who follow Christ. How sad that the things he owned truly owned him, right? The things he owned had truly taken possession of his life, so much so that, that the second point I would want you to know is, is that how we think about money actually reveals our position in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't want to leave you with a negative example, okay? This is obviously the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18 tells us how not to behave with things and possessions and money. There is, if we look just one chapter over, an incredibly positive example. Let's look at chapter 19, and um, I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 to you. And this is such a great, great story. But I want you to look at what's going on here and think about the treasure principle as we're reading this text together, okay? So number one, verse one of chapter 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Jesus was. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. Now stop right there for a second. When Somebody's saying that he's a chief tax collector. That meant that he was working basically as a vassal of Rome. Okay, so Roman power would have appointed him to go around and collect taxes from people. My guess is he had not gone to Dale Carnegie's course on winning friends and influencing people. He probably was not very popular. In fact, we're going to see that right in the text here in just a moment. So there's a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. That's almost redundant. That's almost like saying, and there was sky and it was blue. Simply because if you were a tax collector, you were almost known to be on the take somehow. If you were going to charge a, a, a denarius for, uh, for the tax payment, you would charge two in pocket one. 
That was really what was, what was known at that time. So he was trying to see who Jesus was because he was not able to see the crowd because of the crowd since he was a short guy. He was a short man. And so running ahead, he climbed up on a sycamore tree to see Jesus. Look what happens. Since he was about to pass that way, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly, quickly came down and welcomed him. Now, notice what everybody's doing. They're, they're grumbling. All who saw it began to complain, he's gone to stay with a sinful man. He's gone to stay with a, with a tax collector, right? Those dirty tax collectors. But Zacchaeus stood there, and he said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, he doesn't break out into a devotional word. He doesn't repeat the Jewish Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, your Lord, our God is one. Uh, if he were a modern follower of, of Christ, he doesn't break out into the most recent contemporary Hillsong you know, praise chorus. He literally says, Lord, I'll give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, wink, wink, of course he has. If I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. And now, all of that's amazing already. But what's really amazing to me is what happens in verse 9. Look how Jesus responds. He says, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So the point's pretty clear, isn't it, right? We've got one person on one hand, the rich young ruler, those possessions that he was holding on to kept him from following Jesus. Another guy releases the stuff that he's holding on to and he's welcomed into the kingdom. Wow. That's amazing when you begin to think about it. So what we, what we understand is that even in the first century, money had tremendous power over people, didn't it? Had tremendous influence over people. And how we think about it really reveals what the character of our heart is in terms of where we are in the kingdom of God. Well, there's a third area that I want to go with you. Not just to see what Jesus' core teaching was and not just to see how he applied it in the lives of the rich young ruler and of Zacchaeus. But let's look at the third area and let's see how the church applied it. How did that, how did, I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, well, yeah, of course, Jesus, you got it. It's your teaching, right? You're the creator of the universe. I got it. But it's another thing to say how people just like you and like me, how, how did they apply it? Well, so let's look at some areas along the way and see how the church did that. And I want to contend to you that what they discovered was that there was no higher call to, to, to use money and to think about money than to live generously. There's no higher call than that. And I think that they got that. I think the church got that largely by reflecting on the core teaching of their experience with Jesus. Let me, let, let me get you all to, to kind of preach with me just a moment. Um, John 3.16 probably is the most famous text in all the New Testament anyway, right? 
Uh, most people know that. In fact, if you guys would, kind of say that with me. You, you've heard that repeated. For God so loved the world that he gave. Stop right there. What we see right off the bat in this verse that's oftentimes been referred to as the gospel in miniature is that everything that we know about God, everything that we respond to about God, everything that we find praiseworthy of God starts because God was first generous. He gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, something that was incredibly precious, right? It's interesting that everything the church does, I think, is simply an echo of God's generosity. I believe we have great evidence. In fact, we're going to look in Acts chapter 4, a real clear example of the church living out of that echo uh, as, as it goes forward. Now, again, in, in Acts chapter 4, oh my goodness, what an exciting time to be a part of the church. The church is blowing and going and, 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 and just getting, uh, uh, you know, just, just going crazy. In fact, the church at one time is going so fast that the apostles can't care for it. So they're appointing deacons and all kinds of stuff, just trying to get a handle on, on how the Spirit of God is exploding throughout the known world at the time. And it's interesting that as the church begins to get traction and grow, generosity breaks out in some very tangible and, quite frankly, inexplicable ways. Verse 32 of chapter 4, I'm going to share with you. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and of one mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Now that's an interesting statement right, now, right already. In other words, they got rid of words like my and mine. Somehow they had transferred ownership from themselves to Christ. Now that's significant already. Notice what it says. And no one claimed that his, his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For, listen to this, verse 34, for there was not a needy person among them because all who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. Folks, this is just a little bit before modern welfare. Just a little bit. And yet, poverty was wiped out in the Christian community. Isn't that amazing? Again, because they responded out of the generosity that God had borne in their heart. Verse uh, 35, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as anyone had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus for, uh, by birth, uh, the one apostle called Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, an example of this generosity. He, he, here's the point. The church did not take this core teaching of Jesus and leave it at a theoretical level, did they? They actually put some feet to it. They actually said, hey, here's what this means for us. We're going to make sure that, that, that indeed they're taking care of their own needs. We see that in many other places. But what they were doing is to say, hey, wait a second, I can give what God has given me stewardship over in a way that I can be fully generous. In fact, I can share, I, I can really prove this to you. If we just keep flipping the pages in the book of Acts, we're going to look at chapter 20 in just a second. 
But before we go there, I want to tell you what's happening. The Apostle Paul is speaking, and Paul is just about to die. Paul is just about to die. But before he dies, he's making some final statements. Now, again, if you're approaching death, if you're uh, if you're staring death in the face, you don't typically, you know, talk about the weather. You don't even really talk about how the cardinals are doing or not doing. You talk about serious things. You talk about things that are last of greatest importance. And Paul draws some people to him, and he's telling them, uh, in fact, what he does is he gives them a quote. Now, interestingly enough, this quote that I'm going to read you is the only place I know where Jesus is directly quoted outside of the Gospels and the Revelation. But listen to what he says. In every way I've shown you, verse 35 of chapter 20, in every way I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Isn't that interesting? So again, we see very direct application. Paul, we, we, we saw it when the church is, is growing. We saw it when, when Paul begins to apply this and to teach others. In fact, in fact, not, not only do we see this in general, but I'm going to give you very, a very specific example. This is the last stop we're going to make, but it really, I think, ties it all together for us. Paul is coaching a young individual by the name of Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor, and he was a protege of Paul's. Paul was a mentor to him. Paul, uh, Timothy would have considered Paul a father uh, in the ministry in many ways. And so when Paul is coaching Timothy, Timothy would have been listening. He would have recognized, boy, this is important. This is, this is critical for me to listen to this. And so when Paul's writing the book of Timothy, he's writing a letter to him to say, this is how you ought to run the church. This is how you ought to pastor. Okay? So critically important. Listen to this very carefully. Listen to what Paul says to young Timothy about uh, this topic, uh, 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to read 17 through, through 19. Listen to this. Instruct those who are rich in this present age. And by the way, if you don't think that you're rich, you do recognize that if you've got you know, uh, the ability to turn on a spigot and get water, and if you've got the ability to turn on a, a flip a switch and get lights, that you're wealthier than most of the planet, right? So we, we understand, hey, that, that, that word rich is very relative here. For those who are rich in this present age, not to be arrogant or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. Money comes and goes. But on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure, right? Again, we hear that echoed again, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that, and, and, and I'm going to pause just for a second there. Again, hear what he's doing. He's echoing the teaching of Jesus, that treasure principle, right? Put it deeply in your life. But the last thing I want you to notice, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. I want you to think about something with me. I told you about somebody who had the spiritual gift of crankiness, right? <laughs> Let me tell you about another spiritual gift. 
I've never seen an unhappy, generous person. Have you? I've never seen an unhappy, generous person. In other words, it's clear that one of the reasons God tells us this is not because God particularly needs the money. The reason God tells us this is because he loves you and me enough to know that unless we live a generous life, we will not reflect a generous God. A generous God is the one who gave so much and he echoes and he flows that through us in generosity that helps us to take hold of life that is truly life. It is joyous. I don't know about you guys, but it really is, isn't it, better to give than receive? I mean, think about that. Think about the times where you've had the, had the glorious opportunity to bless somebody else. It's true, isn't it? We, we naturally feel the truth of that. Well, that feeling is not just because it's a good thing or not just because they wrote about it down at the Hallmark store. That feeling is because we serve a generous God, a God who is so kind to us to say, not only am I going to bless you, not only am I going to give you what you need, not only am I, can we echo what we sang about early, Jehovah Jireh, the provider, not only am I that God, but I'm a God who will tell you, if you will be so gracious as to echo my generosity and give it away, I will help your heart bloom I will help you have joy that you've never known before. Would you pray with me? Father, you are indeed a kind God. You love us, you care for us, and you call us to generosity. But Lord, we recognize that it's not as if we're doing anything out of our own strength or ability, but all we're doing is echoing a good God who gave who was generous first to us. And so, Lord, let us be joyful as we give. Let us be hilarious as we give. And let us be generous in our gifts, knowing that all we can do is echo a good God, echo your love for us. Let us demonstrate that as how we love others with the resources you've given us to manage. In Christ's name we pray, his strong name we pray. Amen.